we struggle with loss. And loss is part of new. So new never derives from new. It derives from old. All right. We are here with uh, my good friend, Michael Redd. Michael Redd has been building, developing, and investing in tech-focused startups since he retired from the NBA in 2013. After 12 seasons as a professional basketball player, both in the NBA and the U.S. Olympic team in 2008, Michael has continued a strong drive towards excellence in his focus on venture off the court. He has recently announced his involvement with Advantage Sports Tech Fund as a venture partner. The fund was designed to invest in 15 early stage tech companies focused on sports, which include data analytics and athletic performance technology. Michael was also involved in Snapchat's Yellow Incubator as a member and investor in developing his own venture relationships with his firm, 22 Ventures. It was an honor to join you on your podcast, Michael, and now we're going to turn the tables. So thank you for taking some time to be with me today. I appreciate it. No, it's, it's my honor, Brett. And uh, thank you again for doing the cast. Uh, we had a great time. There's been a great response from you being on the show. Good. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I love what you're doing. And, uh, you know, our our format is really to get you to share your full life story. So as much as I want to just like jump right into your Olympic gold medal and all your accolades, uh, I really want to hear more about you as the human being and your journey that's led you to your success in in your career, both in sports and out of sports, but really to your success as a human being. Because I've really gotten to know you um, as a friend, as a father, as a husband, as a as a volunteer, as um, somebody that's so, so very engaged in the community. And I really admire you way more now as a friend and what you're doing outside of basketball than I did before I knew you and I was just a fan. So we're going to touch on all of that because I, I, I really think there's a lot there to be shared. Yeah, man, there's, there's a lot there. And uh, me and you have had uh, a number of conversations over the years with our wives uh, about the journey. And it's good to share with people on the cast to hopefully inspire someone, encourage someone. Yeah, I'm a product of Columbus, Ohio, uh, and grew up on the hilltop, which is uh, on the west side of Columbus. Um, wasn't the easiest environment to grow up in, but somehow through the grace of God, made it through. My parents did an incredible job, best they could at least, to, to keep me and my sister out of uh, harm's way and out of trouble. So I'm a PK, a pastor's kid. And, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was no fooling around within our household. And my dad and my mom did a great job of just throughout elementary school, middle school and high school of keeping me focused um, as best they could. So there's a lot around us where we grew up at. But uh, very proud to say I am from Columbus. Ask me throughout the years, where, where are you from? Except Columbus, Ohio. Where are you moving back to? Columbus, Ohio. So um, it's... it's uh, tell me a little bit about like, what, what does that mean to be a... a a PK, a preacher's kid, like when and what you when you say that your parents did the best that they could, 
there was a lot around you, the hilltop. Like, tell me a little bit about more about all of that. You know, yeah. how was it to be kind of that preacher's kid, and what was it like to really grow up in that neighborhood at that time? Yeah, it was. It was. It was tough. It was tough. My my father and mom have been in ministry for a number of years, and they really, really sheltered us mentally and physically from what was around us. Obviously, there's violence around us. There's uh, drugs around us. Um, there's all kinds of elements that could have dragged me down. In fact, I would say I'm a statistic because as a black man growing up in America in general, I should be dead or in prison, probably. And that was what was around me. And my parents weren't the only ones that did a great job of uh, really helping me. It was a community of people at that time. Hilltop at that time, as, as tough as it was to grow up in, was still family-oriented. And there had been families that lived on the hilltop 40, 50 years. And so there was a community of people that kind of kept me out of uh, the bad elements of the neighborhood. So it was, it was, when I say they did the best they could, my parents made sure that we were cultured that we traveled as best we could um, by car, <laughs> not by plane. Uh, but we would go to South Carolina. We would go to Washington, D.C., go to Atlanta, Georgia, and just take these family trips uh, to get me and my sister exposed to more than what we saw every day in our neighborhood, where you could get killed at any moment. So, so they, they, you know, when, they, when you say that they sheltered you, you, you were very clear that it was happening around you it was it was unavoidable to know that the violence the drugs that the poverty that it was everywhere you saw it but they just kept you out of it is that what you mean yeah i mean i, I saw it i was in it but i wasn't a part of it uh, yeah and i had older and was it scary to you know as a little kid was it just what you knew was it you know in hindsight you know were you were you afraid of it you know how how was I it I wasn't uh it was just what it was from the time I was born to what to to living and growing up in that environment it's just what what it was so I wasn't afraid my parents had more fear than I did I was a kid you know and just didn't know any better it was just a way of life at that time and, and, you know, you said by the grace of God, you know, and I believe that to be true, but I'm curious kind of circling back around to the preacher's kid, you know, what, what was it like to kind of have uh, faith so strongly in your home and, and how did you take that on, you know, at an early age? Was it something that you gravitated to also, or was there some resistance about that? How was the kind of faith playing out in your early years. Yeah, it was it was it was great. It was a great foundation. It was a lot of training for my parents on how to be not only a great athlete but a, a solid citizen, you know, in, in the culture. So, yeah, it was it was interesting because there was you know, I don't think resistance, but uh, it was something that was really imposed upon me by my parents like you're going to go to church on Sunday morning. You're going to go to Bible study, you're going to go to prayer, you're going to be in these environments. And hopefully within those environments, there's a seed that's planted inside of you that will always have you go back to that, uh, those moments. And so, uh, yeah, I piggyback off mom and dad's uh, relationship with God uh, for many years as a kid. Uh, and then ultimately, as I became an adult, I had my own personal uh, relationship with God. It was interesting because uh, my experience of fun was going to basketball practice and going home and playing Monopoly. 
I never went to a club, never kissed a girl, never did any of those things as a high school kid. And, uh, you know, so it was very interesting. And my parents were just very, very cognizant of the future for me. Yeah. And how, and how young were you when you started to get into athletics? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the ball was my crib, basically. Uh, yeah. So, and was your, was your dad an athlete? He was, he was, he was, he was an athlete, a very good athlete at that. Went to Capital University on a basketball scholarship and uh, had a great high school career. And so uh, he'd never forced it on me in a sense, although I say the ball was in my crib, not literally, but you know, there was trophies all around me from what he accomplished. There were posters of him. Um, every time I looked on TV, there was an NBA game on. So I just naturally kind of gravitated to basketball and sports in general because I love tennis, love football, love baseball. But yeah, it was all around me because my dad was athletic and my mom was a bowler. And so athletics was a big part of our family growing up. Yeah, I still got to get you over here to play some tennis. <laughs> That's got to happen. I mean, I'm playing a lot. I, I want to get you on the court. Dude, just take it easy on me when, we, when I come over there. Seriously. I, I will. I will. But I, 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 I don't think that uh, I'm going to really take that bait because... <laughs> I mean, I know you're like this like casual tennis player that's just going to go out and just like, you know, kick everybody's ass. So I'm not buying it. But like for the purpose of this podcast, I'll say I'm going to take it easy on you. But OK, so let, let's let's go back. So you kind of I, I'm, I'm imagining and I'm wondering, like, it, it almost seems like you've got a lot of admiration for your father that, you know, he's this kind of model dad in a lot of ways and and you're kind of looking around at the trophies and 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 saying you know i want to do that is that fair yeah no question i think he i think his legacy will be that he would be able to break the mold of what mm-hmm. his relationship with his father was um mm. and yeah tell me about it that. was it was disconnected it wasn't nowhere near where my relationship with my dad is and my dad kind of learned what not to do from his dad, just as much as he did what to do. And so our family is similar to a number of black families in America where they were just broken up and disconnected. So my dad bowed to not only have us and conceive us, but also to be a father and be a dad and be around and, and, and be with his children. And so both him and my mom, I think made maybe 40,000 combined. Uh, a year growing up. My mom worked at Sirius, working with forklifts. My dad worked at Pepsi for a number of years, 28 years, 30 years uh, in the bottling company. And so uh, a portion of the company. So they both exhibited a level of work ethic and sacrifice to come home and spend time with me and my sister every evening, help us with our homework, play with us. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's no greater for me example than my dad. Yeah, I'm just curious. The the bottling company my grandfather was with, Pepsi and the bottling uh, company over on Stelzer Road. Uh, I don't know if they ever uh, cross paths at all, but uh, we ought to figure that out sometime. <laughs> Would love to. Would yeah. love to. Yeah. So seeing him, you know, pastor church, and then also give his heart to people that he was shepherding and overseeing their lives and then also working a full-time job 
and then never missed a high school game, never missed a uh, AAU game. Um, it, it speaks volumes to me overall uh, who he was. And, and tell me more about your mom, kind of how she was and what what her role was as you started to kind of um, take this sport on at a young age pretty seriously. You know, kind of what kind of role did she play? Yeah, I think I think she was she was the ultimate sacrifice. I remember her sacrificing her checks to to help me get what I needed to get through AAU, through basketball tournaments. Literally, her checks to help her son achieve his goals and dreams. And uh, she was just content with just being a mom. Like wherever his career took him, great, awesome. But at the end of the day, I love him as a son more than what he can do as a basketball player. And so that was. That was what was needed. I had a you know hot meal every night. You know she was there. You know for us in, in a lot of ways emotionally. You know and my sister. We could talk to my mom. Uh, so combined, having them both in the house was just a real blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a real beautiful uh, relationship. And so the 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 basketball becomes a big part of your life at an early age. How, how young are you when you realize that you're really good? Oh, probably six, five or six. Mm -hmm. So you're pretty young when you like, obviously are kind of standing out. Yeah. Six. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, self-confidence. I don't know if I stood out per se, but I I had (laughs) (laughs) self-confidence. <laughs> I, I wanted yeah. to be standing out to my junior year of high school, actually. Uh, really? Respect for people. Scouts. Uh-huh. I knew I had a self confidence, you know, when I was six years old. And, and ironically, uh-huh. uh, there was more of a passion for tennis than basketball. Okay. You know, I grew up uh, hearing about John Lucas. John mm-hmm. Lucas, who played in the NBA for a number of years for the Houston Rockets, was also an All American tennis, tennis player. Interesting. Yeah. And so they correlate, right? Footwork, hand-eye coordination, uh-huh. endurance. They don't really correlate for me, but um, <laughs> it sounds like they do for you. I can understand how that's possible. Uh-huh. I don't have a shot at to save my life. But footwork, okay, maybe. It's actually the weakest part of my tennis game too. But um, did you, So you were playing tennis as a kid? Yeah, playing tennis. Yeah. I was hitting the ball at Westgate Park against the wall and, and finding any match I could I could find. Uh, in fact, at one point, tennis kind of overtook basketball as far as love. I, you know, my passion for the majors and tennis to this day. Um, it's it, it was it was something that I really was drawn to. But yeah, basketball was uh, the main sport overall, and just had the natural gift. And I played all day, every day. You know, playground. I ride my bike to the playground. Just fell in love with the game and fell in love with what I saw on TV. Uh, watching the great players of that time, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, and saying, hey, I want to be like those guys, you know? And my mom and dad, I remember at eight years old, you know, letting them know that I'm going to get you a house, I'm going to get you out of this neighborhood, and making a strong decree and declaration to them, like, this is going to happen. And they were like, yeah, we, no, we, we get it, son. Not that they didn't, you know, support me, but they were like, ah, okay, no, no problem. But I was committed to this vision I had about what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think this is really an interesting thing because 
It's part of why we do this podcast is because I think the vision for what you want to be and then actually becoming it is a lot more achievable than people realize. Now, I mean, statistically speaking, you know, you're right, you know, as a black man, and then statistically speaking, to get to the NBA, and then just statistically speaking, to have a career in the NBA, you know, it starts to get pretty slim. But, but I think the idea that we can achieve things that um, appear to be uh, unachievable, that often sometimes the story sounds like, well, that's them and they had this and he's really skilled. It's a born gift. I'm not like that, right? And and whatever it might be, there's a lot of stories that kind of keep people from really achieving their vision. Even your parents, you know, her watching you are like, all right, okay, you know, but you you had it like, I'm going to do that. I, I see those guys. I want that. I'm going to do it. And then you did it. I mean, tell me a little bit about that yeah um genetic lottery along the way too so that that kind of helped uh because no family heritage is tall we would go to family reunions and i would be the one at 12 years old sticking out like so it was really really you know a supernatural thing where i grew to six six you know my dad's six foot barely and my mom is five six five five so you know it was it was incredible how that happened but yeah you're right i think I think having vision is is so critical. And I knew at eight years old what I wanted to do. And I think being in a father's house uh, allowed me to dream that way. So knowing who I am, knowing who I was, allowed me to dream the impossible. And, you know, I was affirmed by my parents, which is huge. One thing I think you can give your kids more than anything is confidence. So they were really huge and instilling confidence in me. And, you know, I just felt like at that point, there was no backup plan for me as far as what I wanted to achieve. Obviously, you want to go to school, you want to uh, hopefully get a degree, whatnot. But I was dead set on, I'm going to the NBA. I have a, I have a, I have a seared focus because I have this vision hanging over my head of what I want to want to do. So that kind of that that cloud of vision kind of hovered over my life um, at that point in my life and, and stayed with me. Yeah, I, I think it's really important just to kind of emphasize that because you said earlier that you know you had this confidence even before maybe you were standing out. And I was curious, you know, about that coming from your family dynamic, you know, and I do believe I agree with you. Oftentimes, I think it's even criticized today that, you know, everybody gets a medal or everybody's telling their kids how special they are. But but I think it's better to really let your children um, believe in themselves and to give them support and confidence um, than to err on that side, right. you know, because, you know, if you start to really believe you can do anything, um, you're going to be a lot better off than if you're, you know, the other way. So um, I could see how that played out. And yeah, genetics, but, you know, Michael, you still seem to have kind of, and we'll kind of get to this eventually, vision, big vision, 
and you march towards it and you're accomplishing what you set out to accomplish. That's something that uh, you now are able to do and even do in, in areas that, you know, maybe other people in your position are not able to do or, or haven't been able to do. You know, people don't always make that transition out of athletics into career the way that you are. I think it's the hallmark of my life overall to conquer the impossible. Um, and I say that with all humility, um, that once I put my mind to it, um, you know, it, it usually comes to pass somehow, some way. And obviously my faith in God being rooted in that um, has allowed me to have a certain confidence about life. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been an incredible journey, but, um, I think there's a focus that comes with that as well. Uh, like I mentioned earlier about vision, like the vision that I had kind of dictated decision-making mm-hmm. that I made in my Yeah. So, yeah. So tell me about that. So, you know, you're, you're now getting attention in high school. And, yeah. And tell me about kind of the, the vision and the decision-making that comes as you, as you move into your yeah. college career. Yeah. I think the work, I think that derives from, or well, the work ethic derives from that, uh, the focus. Um, while everybody was out hanging out after school, I would be in the gym uh, working on my craft. I would always stay on the playground playing. I wanted to be the best basketball player in the world. I wanted to be the best tennis player in the world, even though I couldn't get to that point. But I, I think that's what drove me. That's what motivated me. And in order to be the best, there had to be thousands upon thousands of hours committed to the craft. And I committed myself to it because I loved it. And anything that I've ever committed myself to, because I genuinely love it. So basketball, although from a financial standpoint, was an incredible bonus for our family heritage. It's not why I did it, actually. It was to compete and to be the best. And, you know, through high school, I wasn't touted as the top player in, in the state. I was top three or four. But, yeah, people didn't see me in the same light as they did other players. And that's what drove me being the best and uh, proving to myself more than proving to people that I can get something done. So everything that I did and everything I do now is to be the best. And so I never saw the person in front of me as the competition. Uh, It was the inner person within myself to say, can you do it or can't you do it? Where do you think that came from, Michael? Where, Where did that internal drive to be the best where, where does that come from? Is that just who you are? Was that something you took on from your family, from those around you? Tell me, yeah. do you know kind of where that was driving, what was driving that? Good question. I think, I think my family is very competitive. My mom and dad are competitive. So for sure, there's elements of that from them. There's no question. And then I was really focused on getting out of where I was as far as the neighborhood and just committed to having a better life for our family. Um, and that's what drove me as well. Like there's something to be said about struggle and how innovation and passion can derive from struggle. And that was the thought process for me that I'm in this really tough situation. How do I get out of it? How do we get out of it? You know, so that's what drove me. Tell me, so so going to Ohio State was that was that just like 
the only option you you just like had to go what were you looking around tell me kind of about the recruiting process and how you ended up you know landing at ohio state obviously your hometown yeah you know yeah. fan but but you know did you think about going elsewhere not really because i didn't want to do my laundry and that's the honest, <laughs> honest truth. i was i was I, I was a mama's boy spoiled moms will cook meals and, and laundry and yeah I was recruited by a lot of schools, Duke, the whole Big Ten, around the country and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I wanted to stay close to home. I think the one thing that was really intriguing to me about Ohio State was that it was a down program. And and it had been down for a number of years since Jimmy Jackson years. And there was a period where it was just really, really tough program basketball-wise. And so there was a chance to be a part of reviving the program. And that really, really, really was magnetic to me. And then I made the decision to go literally 10 minutes away from where I grew up. And I had the opportunity to see my family, see me every game. That was big for me. And, uh, and, and you know, we were able to uh, have huge turnarounds at Ohio State at the time. You sure were. I, I remember those days. And um, you're right, it was a down program. And you really were the key to bringing it back. Those were some fun years. Tell me a little bit about that, you know, kind of experience and any kind of highlights that stand out. You know, eventually I know you you leave early, which was also a big decision. Tell me a little bit about kind of the, you know, the Ohio State journey. Yeah, it was it was an incredible journey. And you go into that big university, for one, from being a PK, pastor's kid, being sheltered to now being around 60,000 students on a daily, you know, basis. It was like, whoa. And so there was adjustment there. The first quarter, I struggled academically because of all the parties and all of the exposure to everything. It was like, whoa. And so I uh, was able to write the ship, though. So you did start to kind of find the social side of things when you got to college, because you said earlier, you know, you were you were focused, you know, and Monopoly was about as wild as it got. So when you got to college, you started to explore it? Yeah, it was just right there. And yeah. it was something that I'd seek after. There was somewhat of a reputation now going into Ohio State as this hot shot freshman player. And, and then uh, you start playing and then it grows and, and whatnot. So it was it was definitely like eye-opening. And I had to experience those things to know what I didn't want, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, had a ton of fun at Ohio State at the time, on the court, off the court, made some great friends, relationships. And uh, basketball-wise, uh, it was a tough first year. We were 1-17 in the Big Ten and had one of the worst records uh, in the whole NCAA. And then the following year, uh, obviously with the addition of Scooney Penn as my backcourt mate and Brian Brown and a couple of other great players, George Reese, we, were, we went from literally the worst team individual in basketball to one of the best teams. And uh, that was a fun experience of making it to the Final Four. Following year, we won a Big Ten championship. And so we had great success on the court while I was there. And then ultimately figured out that I exhausted all I could do at the college level. Yeah. Yeah. So was that it? Was that you just felt like, you know, you had really exhausted all that you could do at that level and you really wanted to just you know, really feel like what it was like to, to go to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was. That Were you pretty was, clear about that decision? 
at the time, oh, or was that yeah. a hard decision? Yeah, no, yeah. it was. It was. It was. It was. It was hard to get the criticism from the city at the time. The media was on me hard for leaving school early. At that time period, it wasn't very popular to leave school early. And um, I was close to breaking all the records at Ohio State. And the fans were accustomed to winning now. And, you know, you're leaving us now that we write the ship. Now you're leaving us. And so I got it. And it, But it was, it was a hard time for me, actually, to make the decision to leave. Not to leave, but all the criticism that I was receiving for leaving. Um, I did a radio show with Kurt Herbstreit when he had a show here. And Dick Vitale calls in, unbeknownst to Kurt even, and says, Michael Red, don't leave school. Ooh, you know, and so I was hearing from everybody. And, uh, but again, that inner confidence, even through the emotional struggle at that time, still prevailed. And uh, here's the moment where I, I've always wanted to be in. Yeah. At the NBA. Yeah, again, I just want to highlight the, that confidence. I mean, you've got Dickie V calling in and the fans and everybody in your ear about what you should do. And you sound pretty peacefully clear that that's not what you're going to do. You're out of there. And yeah. and by the way, you're right. You know, you fast forward, uh, you know, 25 years, 20, I guess a little more than that now, later, right? And that's like, you know, one and done, you know? Right. I mean, right. you you were actually really smart to do what you did. Uh, and thank God you had the confidence to trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a really, really dark time right after we, the season was over because I made the announcement and I mean, I'm on the front page of the dispatch, the local paper. Terrible decision. Why is he leaving? You know, I remember seeing on the front page of the dispatch and sports sections, talk of radio talk uh, all around town. And it, it seemed like a really, really bad decision. Michael Red, you know, so I just still had to make the plunge, man. Yeah. So you take the jump and what's that like? I mean, what's it like to hear your name? What's it like to then get into the league and now, you know, now you're playing at the highest level. Uh, what was that not like initially? Yeah, it was, it was incredible to, to hear your name called. I was drafted in the second round, not in the first round, which was the goal, but my mentality was like, I'm in, I've made it, you know, and out of millions of players around the world, I've made it in as the 43rd pick. So it was a really, really incredible moment. All the years prior, working to that point, made it, made it so worth it. And so I'm in, I get drafted, and I'm going to Milwaukee. And I'm like, okay, all I know about Milwaukee is Laverne and Shirley, Aaron <laughs> Brotts, Happy Days, right. Milwaukee. We're okay. So, right. and, you know, I get there, and obviously there was a great player by, by the name of Ray Allen who was there. Um, all-star, Hall of Famer, um, and they really, really, he did, and, and, and some of the teammates brought me in and really mentored me and took me in and kind of shaped my future and my career. Yeah, and and so, you know, when you kind of make that jump and you're at that level, when you get there, it's amazing you had that kind of mentorship and guys to show you the way, but how do you feel as like a player? Is it like you're kind of starting at the bottom again or do you kind of feel like I got that confidence and you get out there and you can see like hey I can hang with these guys I mean yeah you know you started to have some success pretty fast so 
you know, what was that kind of little first transition time like? Yeah, it was interesting because I, I did start at the bottom. I didn't play at all my, my rookie year, um, but maybe six games. But I learned so much. And from training camp on, I knew I belonged. Uh, that confidence was there with me. Uh, even though I had all-stars there and great players there, my mentality was to be the best player in practice every single day. I may not be able to play now, but set the foundation of being the best player at practice, the hardest worker. I really earned the respect of the coaches and the players and management because I would show up two hours before practice started and be there early and really commit to the weight room, commit to extra work before practice. And then when practice was over, I would stand up two hours, three hours, work on my game and, and continue to get better as a basketball player. And so the coaches took notice of that and the players did too. And, and then lo and behold, I become, you know, really spark plug in practice. And, you know, at that point too, I still wanted to make our guys who are playing better. So the better I got, the better I would make them in practice, which would make them better in the game. So, you know, it was, it was a really cool, cool time where I learned a lot. And again, for me, the mentality was that the glass was half full rather than half empty because when you're not playing and you love to play and you're a competitor, it can weigh on you mentally. And so I made the decision, the courageous decision to say, hey, I'm here, commit to my role. At some point, I will get uh, the opportunity. Yeah. And so you, you obviously eventually, you know, work your way into that opportunity and then then into a, a, a lot of success. And, and with the success comes money. And, and you're a young, you're a young man. And, and you know, you, you've been navigating now fame, you know, being on the front page of the dispatch and being the 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 big man on campus. And now you're an NBA player and you've got money. You know, and a lot of stuff is got to be coming at you. People, you know, a lot of people wanting to do things with you. I mean, I'm still sure that's the case today. But how did you navigate that? Was it was it a challenge? Was it hard? Did you make some mistakes? You know, what what was it like to be a young man with all of that on your plate and, you know, having to go out and perform at the same time? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, looking back, I'm like, how did I do that? Uh, you just kind of did it. Of course, there were mistakes made by a 20-year-old who just became a millionaire, a uh, 22-year-old. You know, your spending habits. There was no financial literacy that I came from with my family and whatnot. So um, how to handle money, how to handle the pressures of handling money, learning how to say no, how to say no to your family. Uh, certain friends and relationships that have never, ever been exposed to money that have been in your life, their mentality towards money, your mentality towards money. And then you deal with uh, the pressure to perform every night, every single night, having to perform and the media uh, criticism. And so on and on and on at 22, 23, 24 years old is a lot. And if you look at it, Brett, as you, as you know, a lot of CEOs get their money towards their 40s and 50s. I was getting mine at 2022 uh, range. And it was like, wow, what do I do with all of this? So the mistakes that I made are more magnified compared to that CEO who was just a junior exec at the time or a junior 
employee at 24 years old. Same mistakes. Mine was more costly, right? And so I still to this day, obviously by the grace of God, again, I was able to get through that time period because there was a lot, a lot at me. Then you had endorsements, then you got appearances, then you have commercials, then you have uh, the emotional pressure of being celebrated. You know, that's what a celebrity is, to be celebrated. It was a ton, man. Yeah. Tell me, so so it was a ton. I get it. I mean, you know, I, I'm hearing you. I don't actually get it, but I understand what you're saying. I, I, what, I, what I'm curious about is what got you through? I mean, yes, grace of God, but what was the mindset of like, how, like all this stuff on your plate, were you just kind of unconsciously going through it, focusing on the next game and doing it as it was happening? Or were you like, I've got a vision, I'm, you know, going to grind, you know, what, what was it to, to move through that? Yeah. I mean, there is no other thing. I spent a lot of time in prayer meditation, uh, obviously having great people around me at the time. Um, to hold me accountable to the decisions that I would make or would want to make. Um, again, I had great veterans who had me move away from the inner city or the urban area of Milwaukee to where all the clubs were and everything was happening to suburb area where I can kind of help, you know, hang out with them and their families. And it was very, very grounding to do that. I would spend probably half of my season, my rookie year with Ray Allen at his house, spend the night with him and his fiance at the time and now his wife um, and, and they took me in. So it was a, it was a, it was a number of things that kind of kept me from going down, you know, dark paths, uh, as a young person who has money and, and obviously my faith, I would, I would literally pray a lot. And, and I would call friends at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning and say, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about this decision. Mm-hmm. I need your help. You know? Yeah. And yeah. that's courage, right? To have to. Oh man. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. To share what's going on, to share your fears and your 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 truth um, openly. I boy, you know, if if people hear nothing more than that, you know, get that that darkness out of the out of the shadows and into the light and share because we're all the same. We're all struggling with the same stuff, and you know, good for you to have the ability to do that. And and I believe you. You know, I believe that your faith. And your upbringing, you know, really, really did get you through. And, 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 and you had some real good friends and mentors, you know, in, a, in an industry where a lot of people are in the same boat and don't have that upbringing. They don't have that confidence and they are making a lot of bad decisions. I mean, I'm sure you saw a lot of that, too. Uh, but you made those choices that you were talking about. You made, you made choices that, you know, were aligned with who you wanted to be. I think, and thank you for saying that, Brett. It, it's, it was vision again. It was, it was okay. There's, there's options and there's pathways to take. Which one do you want to take? This one will get you to being one of the best players in the world. This one will get you out of the NBA within a year. Mm-hmm. This one will get you dead. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay, so tell, tell me, you know, as we kind of, you know, wrap up some of the basketball stuff, um, I have to kind of ask you, you know, highlights, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, the pictures of you and Jordan, the Olympic team, the all-star games. Is there is there, are there moments that you point to that you look back and just say, uh, man, that was so special, you know, 
Is it is it is it a game? You know, um, is there? Tell me, like, what were the real moments that, in, in, as you look back, you just say, "God, I was so blessed to do that." Yeah, I mean, living your dream is like the ultimate. It's it's so surreal to actually have seen this from you were eight years old to now playing against the guys you looked up to and the top players in the world. I think my second year, I had an NBA record for about 15 years after that. Uh, most threes in, in, in the NBA quarter, or I think it was in the fourth quarter, I had the most threes. And Clay Thompson of the Golden State, Golden State Warriors broke that record two years ago. Stood for 15 years, though. Uh, my second year, you know, having an NBA record. Uh, yeah, we were just talking about this, actually. Uh, not as it pertained to you, but my kids and their friends were talking about the NBA record for three-pointers. And I think Clay had 14, maybe, in total. Does that sound right? Total, he had nine in, in one quarter. Nine I'm in the quarter, yeah. Now, because I had eight, you know. Okay, so, uh-huh. Um, but... Damn it. Another reason to hate the Warriors. <laughs> it's funny because I, I took my son to a Golden State Warrior game and a Bucks game a couple years ago. And uh, he was a huge Warriors fan, Curry, playing all that Durant. And so we walk around the corner and we get a chance to meet all the guys. And he's looking up to them and they're looking at me like, Mike, you know. <laughs> he's like, what? You know. And I'm like, yeah, they were all they were all younger when I played. They took uh-huh. me, you know, and yeah. Um it was funny, it was a funny moment. But uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, all the why are these guys interested in my dad? Yeah. Dad. <laughs> you know, so right. but it was interesting, you know, uh having NBA records, having the franchise record uh for most points of the game. I, I topped Kareem Abdul Jabbar's record, which is crazy. Gold medal was the, the highlight of uh, my athletic career by far. Best players in the world. Developing a relationship with Kobe Bryant. Tremendous honor for me. I had my greatest game ever against him in L.A. Uh, and so LeBron stories and, and, and Jordan stories. I, I remember my second year in the NBA, playing the Wizards. Um, and uh, I think I stripped him at one point and went and dunked it. And then a couple of plays later, uh, I foul him, and he inadvertently elbows me in the mouth or something like that. He looks, he looks at, he looks back at me. He says, "Mike, are you okay?" I said, "I'm good, Mike." But internally, I'm saying, "He knows my name. Uh-huh. He knows who I am. Are you kidding? I made it." Uh huh. You know? Yeah, that is awesome. And there's more stories. The team. Oh, I bet. Relationships that I had, coaches I had. Yeah. yeah. It was a dream. Well. Let's talk about kind of, um, you know, how you, that dream's kind of shifted and expanded in this new uh, post-basketball life of yours. I, I remember specifically you coming into the office while you were still trying to decide. You know, I think it was San Antonio or somebody else. Maybe they were, they were offering you still, you know, one-year deals. You could have stayed. And, and my recollection was you were really done kind of being on the road and really kind of living that life. Um, you know, I think I actually was advising you and, and thinking to myself, oh, just milk it as long as you can. You got the rest of your life to do deals, you know. Um, but, but you, again, had that clarity to know I, that you were done. And that you wanted to move on to the next phase of your life. Is that is that your recollection? 
There's no question. I, and for all the listeners, I did go to Brett for advice back then. So you, you were, you were. I gave you bad advice, I think. No, I think you gave me your opinion. I gave you I think yeah. your opinion at the time. You know, we play, I think we played ping pong a little bit before we got to that point. Yeah. yeah. You've kind of been a great staple in my life over the last six, seven years uh, as far as navigating post career. So um, a lot of people don't know that. But yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting at that time. And uh, for me, uh, the love had waned because my love for my family. I mean, it, it always was priority, but like even at that point, I just wanted to be home and I was tired of the travel to your point. Uh, Could have kept playing, but uh, my son, um, I remember asking him, should I play again? He started crying. He was, I think, four or five years old. And he was like, no, daddy. And I said, oh, easy decision. I called my agent and said, it's a wrap, you know, and it's time to move on to something else. And, uh, but it was, it was a really, really, not hard decision, but it was a it was like a funeral since uh, because that had been such a big part of my life. That yeah, and now it's over. Yeah, it, it's a, it is like a, a loss. Yeah. You know, it's definitely a loss when you have something that's such a part of you that is no longer there, at least in the same way. That really is a a funeral, a, a death. You know. Um, a, it, it's a loss, you know, that's, and there's some, some grieving and some tough, you know, emotional stuff that comes with that. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's, we are accustomed as human beings to always get, to benefit from, to receive, but we are, we struggle with loss and loss is part of new. So new never derives from new. It derives from old. And so for me, transition wasn't the issue. It was me adjusting to transition, which, was, which is the issue for me, which is for me. So now I have to, you know, be a dad and be a husband, which I love doing. Um, now I have to be domestic, clean the kitchen, you know, take out the trash, uh, do all those things that normal dads and, and, and fathers uh, do. And, uh, so it was a new way of life for me. It wasn't just like retiring from basketball. It was a new way of living. Yeah. Yeah. You mean the, um, the room service wasn't delivering to your door and, and housekeeping wasn't uh, taking the trash out for you? Did you say like, hey, Akia, um, where's, where's, what button do I press for room service? <laughs> it, was a, it was an adjustment. I mean, you can know psychologically. It was a huge adjustment from being catered to to now you being the caterer, you know? And, uh, yeah. And, and tell me, what was it like? Cause I know, I know you are uh, a wonderful father and husband and made that transition well, but what was it like to enter into a new career? I mean, now you're getting into venture and investing and, you know, augmented virtual reality. I mean, you, you pivoted into an entirely new space, uh, not just not just new space, but you know some pretty cutting edge stuff too. And you know you spent all of your days and hours, you know, from four, five, six years old uh, through your MBA career, focusing mostly on basketball and family and faith and friends. 
to now start into something entirely new. What was that like? Was it intimidating? Were you, were you, did you have a new vision uh, that guided you? Yeah, I think, I think the vision has always been how can I help people? Even with basketball, I entertain people. I brought joy to people's lives. I became uh, a role model to young kids and young people through basketball. I uh, was able to financially help my family, help friends, and, uh, do really, really major philanthropic things, you know, through our, our foundation and things of that nature. So it was interesting because the first phase of my life had everything to do with surviving. Second phase of my life had everything to do with success. Now I'm transitioning into significance in the culture. So again, the core value of my life has always been how can I give, how can I help people? And I've always been fascinated with technology and I love the story of helping entrepreneurs because they're taking a big bet on themselves, risking themselves and what they believe on how they can innovate and bring something of value to culture and society. And that intrigued me. Um, but yeah, I mean, initially it was like, okay, What's the next mountain to climb? You know, I was able to achieve everything that I wanted to achieve outside of winning the NBA championship. But I got a gold medal. Um, I became a champion. The best of what I did. What's the next mountain? And, and to me, life isn't worth living if there's not a new challenge in front of you. I mean, you've had this conversation for years. You know, obviously the foundation being the best husband and father I can be, which is a challenge all in itself. But also, how do I continue to um, be an example to my children about work ethic and, and things of that nature? Because they were very young when I played ball. But, uh, you know, it was definitely uh, fish out of water. But I think my saving grace is always to be around people who've done it better and big so I can learn from them. Uh, be the, be the, the dumb person in the room. Uh, Run yourself with those who've done it at a high level and learn from them. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, and I think you've done a really good job of. Uh, I would never say the dumb person in the room, but you've made sure that you were learning, that you were you were able to continue to learn and apply that same work ethic. That you know you want to be successful, and so you're going to learn just like you were going to go shoot, you know, and shoot and shoot and shoot. You know, you're learning and learning and learning and. And I love the idea that, you know, it's all focused on helping people. And I know that about you. And I know you and Akia are both really active um, in the mental health space, which is a passion of mine. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of any of your work that you're excited about, um, either, you know, in that space or with the tech. You know, I think there's so much happening in that world now. Um, and this really is a time. As, as we're, you know, struggling as a, as a society, humanity, uh, to start to really lean into some of those tools and modalities and technologies, you know, anything that you want to share that you're, you're focused on now? Yeah, for me, um, it'd probably be better to have a key ask that question because she's, she's more steeped into it than I am. I'm more now shifting into sports tech. But, but totally see the viability for technology to overlap with, with mental health. And I mean, the greatest need now for mental health is now. Um, with all that's happening with COVID, unemployment, and obviously racial tensions being caught on camera now. And 
you know, all of this, it's almost like a, this year is almost like a perfect storm in a sense. So um, Akia and I, I, I kind of partnered with her uh, and her passion with uh, seeing people mentally become healthy in every capacity. And so, yeah, that's something that we're excited about doing. We partnered with Children's Hospital um, on a number of opportunities, which we're very proud of here locally in Columbus. Uh, Kia has her own foundation um, where she's really attacking the stigmas attached to mental health. Uh, I believe with all my heart, for those who can afford it, therapy is such a huge, huge part of your growth. Development, me and you talked about that. Uh, I think everybody that's born needs to see a therapist because uh, life is just traumatic. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge part of our family and uh, we're really passionate about people uh, being reformed and transformed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you've done so much and, you know, I, I know you've done a lot with the wave and, and just, you know, there's so many stories, Michael, I hear all the time, the people that you're connecting to and the work that you and Akia are doing, it's really admirable. Let's talk a little bit about kind of 2020 I know you and Kobe were friends, so you you, you have that tragedy. Uh, obviously, this pandemic, and then you know the the, the George Floyd murder. Um, talk to me a little bit about kind of how you're feeling now, how you're navigating this. I am curious about kind of race and your um, experience as a black man, and and you know how you're feeling about, you know, what's going on in the world today. Yeah. I've been speaking to a lot of corporations uh, and CEOs about race, race relations, uh, microaggressions, on and on and on. And one of the things I've been really encouraging corporations is to begin to invest into the mental health of black people, black employees, uh, black staff. It's a huge deal. This year has been crazy um, from the beginning. For me personally, with losing my brother, Kobe Bryant, and then obviously COVID, he and I really mentoring, helping um, psychologically people who lost their jobs, lost their businesses. Um, and then obviously with uh, what happened with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, uh, Rashard Brooks, um, it's been a really tough year for Black people in general. And then the fatigue of seeing the injustices within our country. So I've been playing traffic cop pretty much the last few months on all sides to, to kind of help people become educated and then refining their thinking towards these issues. So I, I, I'm focused. I'm focused on the big picture of diversity and equality for everyone. I so appreciate symbolism and, and what it can do uh, but at the end of the day, I just think that from an economic standpoint, there has to be a level of diversity at the executive levels, CEOs, there needs to be more board seats for diversity, on, on, and on. There just has to be not only inclusion, but equity, diversity and equity. And so hopefully in the years to come, in the days to come, the weeks to come, that we'll continue to see change at the top executive levels. Uh, when it comes to government, when it comes to economics, on and on and on, we just have to begin to see more diversity um, 
at that level. That's been my bet for the last few months. And 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 how do you feel about the reality of those things coming to fruition? I mean, do you feel like now there really is change that that is going to be made, or do you think it'll be incremental and and this is you know going to be the rest of our lifetime advocating for this to become equal? Yeah, I don't know if it'll shift totally in our lifetime, but I feel like we're not going to go backwards. Rodney King, we went backwards and we were younger when that happened. But seeing the image of the lynching, modern day lynching of George Floyd, made everybody take a step back and really say, okay, we, we, need, to, we need to do something about this. Uh, and so uh, his life has been a seed, I believe, of progress you know, over the last two months. And, you know, I've been bombarded with opportunities to be on boards, um, which has been great. Uh, I just, I feel like this is a time where we need to see change more than just healing. And what I mean by that is like, we've been clamoring for healing in this nation, but I think change produces healing. Once we begin to see systematic changes, then the healing begins to happen. And as we continue to clamor for change and fight for change, we have to continue to make sure that we're transformed and reformed internally in order to steward and handle the change that we want. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Michael, thank you for joining me. Tell me before we wrap up here, podcast is out. I'm loving it. What else are you into? I know you're really kind of continuing to expand your work and your impact in the community. Anything you want to share with the audience? Final thoughts, plugs. You know, this is, <laughs> the, the microphone is yours. No, it's it's. I appreciate you, Brett. I appreciate your cast as well, man, and what you're doing. You know, just continue to to be focused and plow. You know, and trailblade. Obviously, in the venture world, uh, became a venture partner of a sports tech fund, working with the Adidas family, uh, ironically, which has been a powerful, powerful opportunity. Um, doing a lot in Israel. We've talked about that over the years. Really plugged the whole ecosystem over in Israel. And relationships over in Israel is just second to none. Yeah, The Wave is the nonprofit. We continue to help facilitate change within people's hearts and also within their their businesses. So that's still popping and going. A uh, dear friend of mine, Danny Ortiz, now runs that. I oversee it, but he kind of does the day-to-day. So I'm excited about that still. Uh, yeah, I, I know I'm missing a couple of things. I just joined the, the board for Redbox. Pretty pretty cool. Uh, had a poignant conversation with the CEO about two months ago. We've been friends for a couple of years and he just wants to see change uh, at the top. So that's cool. I'm doing the commencement speech for Ohio State. Yeah. Honored by that. So there's a lot going on beyond that that I'm sharing. But uh, at the end of the day, Brett, you know, me and you have the same heart. And it's really to help people, give people opportunity and access that they wouldn't normally have. And that's what drives me. Yeah. Yeah, I know it does. And and uh, we do have that in common and uh, a lot more. And it's... Uh, 
real joy to be a friend and um, be along for the journey with you. And I appreciate you taking the time to share your journey with the audience. I know it will mean a lot to people and hopefully help them. And yeah, let's, uh, let's get on the court. Uh, you say when. <laughs> you, now you don't come off a knee injury, so please take it easy. Okay. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm pretty much free every day. So you tell me. Oh, okay. I'm I'm gonna text you. We're gonna we're gonna get a date on the calendar. I would love to, man. I would love to. I would love to. <laughs> All right, we'll get we'll get a good crew together. And play a little doubles. So I'll take it easy on the knee. Reporting back to me how good you are. So. Oh, oh, all right. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> all right, Michael. Hey, thanks again. It's awesome being with you. And um, we will uh, talk to you real soon. Yes, sir, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 